Hello and welcome to the Food Navigator podcast, your deep dive into the trends shaping Europe's food and beverage space. I'm Food Navigator journalist Ollie Morrison. In this episode, I'll be exploring the colourful world of so-called ancient grains and forgotten crops. As people become more aware of, of the benefits of ancient grains, um, we, we, we will start to see, to see more of them. Scientists are currently hard at work finding solutions to the world's food problem. Earlier this week, for example, researchers in the UK announced, much to the irritation of the anti-GM food lobby, they had created a new modified wheat variety that can increase crop yields by up to 12%. Just a ticket, they said, at a time when the UN says we need to increase food production by around 50% in the next 15 years to meet the demand of a growing global population. But wait, is the solution right under our noses? Millet, sorghum, buckwheat, amaranth, spare a thought for these antiquated and overlooked grains, say many. These exotic sounding crops are nutritional powerhouses packed with sustainability credentials and which offer a significant opportunity to improve human and planetary health. But I have questions. How do these ingredients, ignored by the R&D community for so long, react in food applications? Are they a truly scalable solution to the health and environmental problems we hear so much about? And, most importantly of all, do consumers want to eat them? I caught up with Mark Driscoll, founder of the sustainability consultancy Tasting the Future. It's fair to say he loves these so-called ancient grains or forgotten or orphan crops. Which ones should the food industry be tapping and why? Well, I suppose there's a, there's a number of possible orphan crops. Uh, crops. Um, I think, um, you know, I've identified a number of kind of food trends into 2021 20, and beyond. I think uh, one of those are what I would call high-protein leguminous uh, uh, crops. So uh, legumes are often valued worldwide as a kind of sustainable, sustainable and inexpensive uh, meat alternative um, and are becoming one of the most important food sources of, of plant-based proteins um, and uh, micronutrients. Uh, um, obviously, they're highly valuable, nutritious, lots of amino acids, fibers, and their ability to fix kind of nitrogen into the soil. Uh, so they basically are crops that offer significant opportunity to improve human and planetary health. Um, in the UK, crops like chickpeas, in fact, we had the uh, first crops harvested, I think, in Norfolk um, at the back of uh, August. Uh, but things like, obviously, lentils, yellow split peas are seeing something as a revival uh, due to clean eating and, and veganism. And then other uh, crops such as uh, millet, um, often grown in marginal lands in, in Africa, Asia, small seeded, nutrient rich cereal grains being cultivated since the dawn of, of agriculture. And they're particularly adept at growing in semi arid regions. They're drought resistant. Um, so, yeah, that, that's uh, one kind of series of crops. I've, I've mentioned other legumes, uh, there are crops like pigeon peas in parts of Africa. India, again, large tap roots, 
drought resistant, can um, help improve soil health uh, and, and contribute to uh, all sorts of kind of micronutrients that, that, that the world will need in the coming years. Are these crops scalable? Um, I think oh, part of uh, the, the problem is, is um, the research community. They're often called uh, forgotten crops uh, because the research community have really ignored uh, ignored them in terms of investment, genetic improvements. The world, you know, is dominated by the four crops: rice, maize, wheat, and soya bean providing, you know, I think over 50% of, of plant-based human foods. Um, but I think with the right um, investment um, and engagement with uh, farmers at a community level, they are certainly uh, very uh, scalable. Um, and, you know, both public and private sector investors really need to focus on what I would call crop diversity. So some of the 70,000 edible crops that can be eaten by humans, we really need to you know, diversify that and make more use of culturally appropriate foods. But yeah, there are some challenges to scale and manufacture and production there. And what other problems do these ingredients solve? Is it all about health and sustainability credentials? So I think um, that they have the potential to solve a number of um, of problems. I think um, they have the potential to provide a decent income for farmers at many scales. So certainly smallholder farmers they can be seen as a, um, a highly valued uh, crop. They have, a, you know, potentially quite significant uh, sustainability uh, benefits. Some of those legumes, as I mentioned, you know, have long tap roots, the ability to grow in uh, areas suffering from drought, tap into uh, water tables well below the, the, the surface improve health, uh, soil health. A lot of them are nitrogen fixers, so legu as leguminous crops. So the ability to reduce dependency on fertilizers, nitrous based fertilizers and, and pesticides uh, is, is, is high. And yes, uh, some of them are, you know, are really highly, uh, highly nutritious and, and, and highly. Uh, productive, particularly in per parts of the world where you know hunger and malnutrition is is prevalent. In, certainly in parts of Africa and South East Asia, for example. Uh, is there demand for these kinds of ingredients from uh, manufacturers and consumers, or is it more the case that we haven't really heard of them enough because of the research issue you, you mentioned? I think there is increasing demand. Um, interestingly, brands like Unilever, they produced a, a report, um, I think about 18 months, two years ago, uh, in conjunction uh, with WWF, um, 50 Future Foods. They identified a number of these, you know, orphan and forgotten crops, um, you know, not just leguminous crops, but 
they mentioned you know various fungi mushrooms various cacti other succulent uh, plants and you're now starting to see uh, product development teams, you know, looking at some of these ingredients. So in the case of Unilever, they are actively um, developing a number of new products. Um, they've joined up with a food service company called Sodexo um, and are now starting or about to start to introduce these in terms of, of menus within the food service sector. So I think um, you'll see increasing attention on these products, particularly, I think, partly driven by consumers who are increasingly looking at clean labelled type foods uh, and um, these often or forgotten crops, uh, you know, meet that need or demand, if you like. What kind of applications do you envisage for, the, for these ingredients? Have you got any more, any other examples of, of, of MPD? So I think, um, like everything else in, in, in MPD, you know, the, the, there are barriers around taste and, and texture, uh, and taste and t texture will remain key priorities for product uh, developers over the next few, few, few years. So, um, I think there's a lot of experimentation with some of these leguminous crops, how to combine it with other uh, flavorings, for example, um, particularly when kind of tapping into the flexitarian market. So some of these crops can um, be used and reformulated to um, uh, tap into the kind of flexitarian or meat replacement uh, market. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think particularly, I think peas, nuts, um, where some of the kind of taste combinations can replicate meat or dairy uh, products using things like extrusion technologies. Um, I think you're going to see, you know, increasing uh, interest by uh, product developers and researchers um, with these kind of mix of plant-based ingredients. I think that the other interesting area around some of these uh, orphan or novel crops is um, they do have quite a fibrous texture. So their ability to replicate, you know, uh, the taste and texture of plant-based meat alternatives is, is also quite uh, an exciting and interesting area. You mentioned taste and texture there. Do you foresee any other potential problems with these ingredients? I.e., um, I'm thinking pea protein has been uh, a lot of people are worried about potential allergies, for example. What, what do manufacturers need to be aware of here? So I, I, I think yes, I think uh, manufacturers do need to be careful of of of, of allergies. I think. Um, some of the health and nutrition credentials of these products, uh, particularly where they're heavily processed, are incre increasingly going to be uh, perhaps challenged. So novel uh, and you know, orphan crops that are combined with lots of saturated fats, sugars and salts, obviously to, to tap into the barriers around taste and texture, 
are probably not the kind of direction of travel because the the health credentials of some of these products are increasingly going to be questioned by you know investors uh, uh, and uh, and consumers um and i think you know there are also you know my focus on sustainability uh we've got to be careful not to jump from the frying pan into the fire and be really even more careful around uh, uh life cycle assessment of some of the kind of environmental uh, impacts around these uh, uh, around these products so uh, th- there are challenges but i think that the opportunities far outweigh some of those uh, some of those challenges do you have a, a favorite forgotten crop or from crop or ancient grain um i suppose um there's a there's a there's a crop called amaranth which is a plant from central uh, america uh it was a plant that was important food of of the kind of aztec mayan and inca civilizations um i you know it i've i've eaten it a little bit it's not um commonly available uh, at the moment uh, it's got quite a kind of uh, nutty flavour and texture, but it's 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 highly nutritional um, and um, very kind of drought uh, drought resistant. Um, so yeah, I, I I do think there are opportunities uh, with, with with some of those uh, crops. Well, I think you know that's crops that can't necessarily be grown in the UK. Um, I'm quite excited by, um, obviously, the development of things like um, uh, chickpeas in the UK, you know, often referred to as the new kind of cauliflower, if you like, a good source of iron and phosphorus and folic acid. Um, And so, yeah, I'll be interested. I think only 20 tonnes was produced this year, year, destined for the uh, Hodmodods, I think. But, you know, I think it's quite exciting to see chickpeas cropping up in products like kind of flour, tofu, cereals um, um, in the UK in, in the coming uh, in the coming year. Um, as will will crops like kind of lentils and uh, and yellow uh, split uh, split peas, for example. So there's a few exciting and interesting uh, developments um, occurring in the UK. One exciting development in the UK is a brand called The Savorists. It's harnessing the power of ancient grains including quinoa, puffed amaranth and sunflower seeds to create something completely new for consumers, a savoury snack bar, which last month began rolling out in Sainsbury's as part of the supermarket's Taste the Future Bay. Here's its founder, Harry Turpin. When, when, when the idea first came around to, to create savoury bars, um, we were looking at the category and looking at what other, other products existed in that category and, and predominantly everything was a sweet-based bar. Um, so, so we created the savourists to be um, the, the, the sort of... Um, we wanted to drive the category and innovate in the category. Um, and, and the only way we were going to do that was, was by bringing a savoury bar to market. A lot of bars had, had, had dates and nuts in them and, and, and there's, a, there's a place for them and they're all fantastic products. But they were all quite similar and the taste profiles were all quite similar. So, so we set about creating um, two, we got two skews. We've got a black olive and nori seaweed and a sun-dried tomato and herb. Um, 
And we started looking at other ingredients um, in, in other products, predominantly sweet-based products. Um, and, and as we sort of started to evolve, we looked, we were looking at various different seeds and herbs and we couldn't quite get the texture right. And um, we, we, we then started looking into, into ancient grains. So yeah, as, as you said, we used puffed millet in our black olive one and, and puffed quinoa and puffed amaranth in, in the sun-dried tomato and the black olive one as well. Um, and, and pr- pr- predominantly the, the, they're there for taste, texture. You get a really lovely kind of nutty, um, texture from, from ancient grains. Um, and so a nutty flavor from ancient grains. Um, and, and the texture is, is nice and crunchy and adds a, adds a different dimension to, to, to the other seeds and, and grains that are out there. Um, we did quite a lot of research into ancient grains and and in, in into the sort of um, in, into the farming background of, of how they're done and, and obviously like a, a, ancient grains um, have 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 their name because they they are ancient um, and and the reason reason for that is is um, due to the fact that quite a little has changed in terms of selective breeding um, so they're genetically similar in terms of flavor and nutrition to what what our ancestors used to eat which 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 I found absolutely fascinating um, and and they bring a, a real diverse element to, to to the human diet both in terms of texture flavor but also nutrition as well um, and also bring a really lovely diversity aspect to, to, to the farming systems where do you source them from so at the moment we 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 source through wholesalers they're, they're quite difficult to, to 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 get to get hold of um and and they are expensive as the business grows we want to be going uh and we're, we're starting to do that now to to, to direct farmers um and and i, and I love that to relationship piece um, going direct to, to farmers and, and, and finding how we can we can um, sort of bring more of a diverse farm system to to them um, rather rather than um, the kind of st- standard grains that have have been modified over the years um, and and have a kind of shorter rotation um, and, and a monoculture. Uh, monocultural system um, that, that that farmers have sort of re- become to, or that we as humans have become to rely on. Mm. So, so given these health and sustainability benefits that they bring, why do you think the food industry hasn't fully embraced the, the possibilities of ancient grains? I, th- I think because your 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 um, standard um, sort of more um, Great. You'll see your standard grains, such as wheat, corn, and rice, um, that, that are the main players that humans can consume the most of. They've been selectively bred for thousands of years, and they've become quite resistant to disease. Um, and they're also the ability to, to produce high yields. Um, but I think what, what we're starting to see more of now is, is, is how intensively these crops are grown. And they're designed to rely heavily on fertilisers and, and, and herbicides to grow, which are starting to damage health, soil, water and environment. So I, I, I do think that, um, they, that the ancient grains have been more under the limelight. I think um, the, 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 the grains that I just spoke about are, are easier to grow. And as we've evolved, they have been the ones that have evolved, um, evolved naturally with the farming system. But I think as people become more aware of, of the benefits of ancient grains, um, we, we, we will start to see, to see more of them. 
you briefly mentioned how the etching grains help the taste and the texture of your your products. Are there any yep. challenges that you've encountered that manufacturers should be aware of when using these types of ingredients? Um, I, th- I mean, as, as with anything, there's 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 always, there's always going to be challenges. I mean, for us, um, we we wanted to bind everything together using the most nat- natural way possible. Um, we, but due to the fact we're savoury, we have a lot lot less sugar um, in 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 inside the bars than than some other sweet bars. I mean, a lot of the sweet bars have a nat- natural occurring sugars from from fruit and dates, but there's still quite a lot of, of sugar in there. So for us, sort of b- binding various different grains together is is quite difficult. We're quite lucky at the moment; we buy them puffed, so so all the sort of popping has has been done done for us, um, and and therefore it. it, it the, the the challenges were, were slightly easier, um, but but yeah, I, th- I think with anything, a, a lot of our processes have changed over the last few months. And part of that first lockdown, going back and kind of introducing ancient grains into the mix, um, and and being able to find a way to, to 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 bind them together was was probably the biggest challenge. What's the appeal among consumers? What's the feedback like so far? And do they have to pay a premium for these types of ingredients? I mean, I think a, a, yes, yes is, is is the short answer, um, but but not necessarily bespoke to ancient grains. Um, we we are a slightly more sophisticated snack bar, so we're we're retailed at one eighty five, um, but but that's more to do with the kind of flavour profiles rather than rather than the ancient grains. I think ancient grains have become um, have have become more known recently and almost have that kind of sexiness appeal to it if that makes sense um so when when you look at stuff like quinoa you you can see that being introduced into or has been introduced for, for years into kind of salads um and and more kind of premium restaurants in in, in as, as a side dish um and for us kind of using it i think a lot of a lot of people that that, that, that see the back of pack and enjoy our bars will will pull out puff millet and, and half, half of them won't know what puff millet is um but then you also have the puffed quinoa and puffed amaranth where a lot more people do do, do know what it is and and um it, it strikes up a really interesting conversation to be able to talk about a the sustainability impact but also how the the ancient grains really do bring a flavor to 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 our products and they bring a kind of nice rich um, not not only from a nutri- nutritional perspective, but also from a flavour perspective. Um, so I, th- I think as as ancient grains, um, as the focus becomes more and more on them, we we as a business are, are, are wanting to shout more about ancient grains, um, and and they've been they've been received really well. We we, we have a lot of trade um, interest at the moment, specifically through through the ancient grains, and it gives us a really lovely talking point. Um, and, and consumers are, are very receptive to it as well. When do people eat your bars? When's what kind of eating occasion do they suit? That's 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 a great question. So so uh, they um, whenever basically we it's a snack bar. So so it, it, it's there to to, to fill an in between a, a meal time occasion. Um, we've we specifically wanted it to to to, to be um, an afternoon snack where where you get that sort of lull at, at three four o'clock. Um, that that can give you a slightly more indulgent experience from a flavour perspective, not indulgent in terms of just the fact that it's sweet. But recently, we've had a lot of people um, talking to us about how they eat them 
for breakfast and you have the sun-dried tomato one um, for breakfast and, and and also people who have started using the bars to to put with with a cheese or or, or, or with some hummus um, as a kind of um, an, an, another snacking um, experience um, so so for, for, for us it's it's whenever somebody will want a snack I mean we will be pushing obviously down the route of having it as, as a lunchtime alternative as well so rather than a packet of crisps or or some popcorn or or a sandwich you could have a soup and one of our bars alongside it but predominantly we see it sitting in that kind of our afternoon slump um, as it were uh, and what kind of ancient grains could the food industry embrace going forward? What's in the savourist pipeline? Global pandemic so, side. So, <laughs> so I, I think there's there's all sorts of things that that ancient grains can be can can be used for. I mean, puff millets are really good substitute to oats. So I think we we could see the the, the industry moving towards kind of incorporating that in, in, into more into more breakfast occasions. Um, obviously. Obviously, quinoa and puffed quinoa is is, um, is 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 out there already and is in in quite full force. Um, but I could I could see more puffed um, grains coming through. Um, so so you could see puffed quinoa in a in in, in a packet like like crisps, for example. Um, and and the pop popped is quite a big buzzword at the moment. So I think we'll see quite a lot of more popped and puffed products. Um, coming to market and then amaranth is is a really lovely sort of nutty flavor and and actually um, if, if you fry amaranth you, you get a really crispy um, delicious texture that that works perfectly with a salad topper um, specifically for the for, for the savorists um, there's 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 some definitely some stuff in the pipeline we'll we'll, we'll add a we're adding a new flavor next year um and 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 some some other pack formats as well and actually we're working on a on a project that that is completely out of the snacking space as well so um all, but but incorporating ancient grains ancient grains will will be at the heart heartbeat of our ingredient um of, of our ingredients in, in in years to come how exciting what's what's a popped product so 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 like puffed or popped so so puffed quinoa for example what what you're seeing in trade at the moment is is stuff like pop lotus seeds coming up um which which essentially is 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 similar to your kind of popcorn where where you're popping corn i think you you you'll see people so pop, popping quinoa puffed quinoa um and 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 various other other products coming through and anything you can you can puff or pop where where you basically heat it up and then and then cool it down and then heat it back up again and, and, and these products kind of puff out a little bit like your rice krispies um and, and and you get a really lovely kind of airy airy light texture to them um which which i think i think we could see we have no plans on on launching a kind of puff puffed quinoa bag yet but 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 who knows what the future holds you can see that being of appeal to the the healthy snackers out there, can't you? Yeah, absolutely. And I, th- I think I think you can see a kind of a natural evolution away from from crisps and and not and not only just just the healthy snackers. I mean, yes, the appeal in terms of picking it up is definitely going to come from somebody who is focused more on their nutrition. But 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 grains ancient grains specifically, and, and especially the ones that we use, they taste really nice as well. So yes. There's a nutritional benefit to them, but one once seasoned and, and, and flavored, they 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 taste delicious as well. So I think there's there's a lot of education to be done around um, 
that as well and around taste and and and, and texture and, and flavor because uh, as you say um a lot of people will go oh wow well that's just going to be for someone that goes to the gym sort of 10 times a day or or is incredibly focused on the nutritional side of things which yes is true but at the same time they taste really good so i could i could see more and more people um as they start to try them um sort of sw- switching along yes for the nutritional benefit but also from a taste perspective as well and 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 and, and the way that the texture kind of crunches in your mouth glad to hear it tastes good yeah. <laughs> but i think we'd be in trouble if it didn't another brand harnessing the power of ancient grains is insane grain it's using the aforementioned ancient super grain sorghum to disrupt the healthy snacking sector crisps made with sorghum here's the brand's founder rashina shah who quit her corporate job with procter and gamble to set up the snack business to tell us more. I got to a stage in my career when I thought, why am I doing this for a big corporate when essentially I could be doing it for myself? Um, so around that time, I was kind of looking for inspiration. Um, I knew I wanted to set up my own business, didn't know exactly what I wanted to go into. And I always had a real passion for in the food industry. Um, and I was at my aunt's house and she was in the kitchen um, popping this grain. And I knew about the grain. So I'm Indian. Um, I've been brought up kind of knowing what this grain is in its kind of less universal name, which is Juwadani um, in Hindi. Um, so I didn't know it was called sorghum, kind of the more universal name. Um, I, I'd known about it in like chapatis, in porridge, um, and not necessarily in snacking form. So she was in the kitchen and she was trying to pop this grain. She's really adventurous and um, kind of she's one of those women that tells me that everything's amazing for me. So she said to me, oh, you have to eat this. It's, it's so good for you. Um, and I didn't believe her. So I sent the product for nutritional testing and found that actually she was right. It had far better vitamins, minerals, and nutrient content than anything that I could see on the shelf. So that's when I had my light bulb moment. I thought, right, I'm onto something here. Um, so I did a lot more research. I realized that there was a massive gap in the market for a mass market, genuinely nutritious snack. Um, so it was then that I decided to essentially quit my corporate job and set the business up full time. Um, so... I'd say, yeah, I've known about the grain and didn't know how amazing it actually was. And I think that's similar to a lot of people um, in the UK. And so for me, it's all around how do I make sure that I can um, drive awareness of this incredible grain. And I guess the name Insane Grain says it all. It's this insane grain. In what way is it so nutritious? What did your investigations reveal? Yeah, so I work with... um, a lot of kind of uh, biotech labs and scientific uh, platforms just to make sure that I wasn't going down the wrong path and because you you read a lot about um, grains and things that are are not necessarily actually very nutritionally dense so um, you hear about macronutrients uh, like protein fiber but not necessarily all the micronutrients like vitamins and minerals so when I did my research I found that actually sorghum was packed with vitamins and minerals it's full of iron it was potassium rich, it promoted healthy blood pressure, it was good for bone health, it was a massive energy booster, rich in fiber, gluten-free. I mean, the, the list is just endless and it's just an absolute nutritional powerhouse. And it was like nothing else that I could see um, in the category when I compared it to things like corn um, or rice flour or maize, which a lot of the traditional snacks are made out of. Um, it just was, it was far better than any of those. 
And what does it taste like? I, I might be biased, and, <laughs> but um, I, I think they're delicious. One one thing we really didn't want to do was compromise on the taste. So a lot of snacks in the market tend to use kind of these healthier alternatives, but they sometimes have a, a an aftertaste at the end. So price and taste still remain the number one and number two purchase Um the decision maker when a consumer goes on the shelf that's the the thing they want to one see is the prices a mass market price but then also when they taste it if it doesn't taste good they're not going to repeat purchase um so what we've made sure is that the product is really crispy and melty so it has the same sort of melt feel as a what's it and so a consumer who is has a bag of what's it's next to a bag of insane grain isn't going to have to compromise on taste and flavor um and so we spent a considerable amount of time making sure that actually um, the product itself was right before we launching it, just to make sure that we would have a strong repeat rate. And so we um, launched the range in March, so the worst timing whatsoever, uh, with COVID hitting exactly the same month um, that we launched. And what we found is actually our repeat rate is far higher than the category average. So our repeat rate is around 40%. The category average is around 20 to 25% which shows that actually consumers love the taste and texture because they're coming back and repeat purchasing over and over again. Um, so I, I, I would say, of course, it's delicious, um, but also the market data is showing that us that it's delicious too. What is the price and how have you managed to keep it down? Um, good question. So for me, what was a fundamental is that we understood where the white space opportunity actually was. So when I looked at the category, I saw that there were these healthier challenger brands, but because they don't have economies of scale, it means that they have to price a bit more premium. Um, and then you have the unhealthy mainstream snacks, such as Watsits, uh, Walkers, Monster Munch, etc. They tend to be around an ATP price point. And in the UK, we've got a massive child obesity crisis. It's been exasperated with about um, due to COVID. And for us, it's really important that we are a brand that is at a mass market price so that we are accessible to low-income households, and we are really tackling this childhood obesity crisis. Um, so initially, it was a struggle just because we didn't have the level, the economies of scale, or the ability to actually purchase at a much lower price. But we found a manufacturer who is a great support and a great partner for us, and we work with them to make sure that we're sourcing the best ingredients but at the best price. Yeah, so at the moment, um, we actually use sorghum flour. So this, uh, we source the sorghum uh, from Africa and America. That's then converted in a mill to a sorghum flour. Um, and that's all done directly by our manufacturers, um, just because we are still kind of at the earlier stages of the business. So initially, it was all around getting the business to a place where we could launch. And now we're focusing more on how do we actually source it from um, farmers and work with companies like Smart Food and partner with them who are the experts in, in this field. And are you compromising in any way sorghum's nutritional properties in the way you source it and in, and in turning it into this crisp? Um, so again, really good question. So our manufacturing process involves a process called extrusion and that extrusion process has um, obviously a high temperature. So naturally, when you go through the extrusion process, um, when you put ingredients through it, you kind of kill off a lot of the good vitamins and mineral content. That's why we spent a lot of time actually working with our manufacturer and um, the bi biotech labs to make sure that we weren't actually getting rid of any nutrients as it passed through the whole extrusion process. Um, and one of the things that was really important for me was 
having um, the gut health side of it. So sorghum is naturally really high in fiber. So it already has a gut health benefit to the consumer. Um, but what I wanted to do is have that kind of, our brand is doing things insanely differently. So I really wanted an insane gut health benefit for the consumer. So we work with a biotech lab um, in India and now more recently also in America um, to source a probiotic which we can put through the extrusion process, but it doesn't kill the good bacteria in the probiotic, which means that um, at the end, the consumer gets the, their daily um, equivalent of the probiotic that they actually need. Um, so again, we've spent a considerable amount of time actually on the manufacturing process to make sure that through the um, heat and everything that goes through the process that we're not killing off any of the amazing nutrients and the, um, and that's one great thing about sorghum. Um, and so just to add on add to that as well there's from what i believe 32 different varieties of sorghum um, so for us it's all around trying to source the one which has the best nutritional content possible so that the consumer gets the most insane health benefits um, that they can so that's something that we are continuously working on and it's a, it's a massive focus for me at the moment that's fascinating so apart from your sourcing what else is in the insane grain pipeline um, so our brand is all around uh, being synonymous with sorghum. So everything we do, we want it linked to this insane grain sorghum. Um, so at the moment, we want to kind of focus on the core range. Um, what we don't want to do is branch out too far and then actually not focus on the, the key fundamentals. And that's something I learned from my kind of corporate experience at P&G. Um, we used to say that actually it's better to have fewer um, MPD, fewer innovation and make sure that it's good innovation rather than innovating for the sake of. So initially it's all around um, actually developing our core range. So more recently we launched our 80 gram sharing bags and that was the result of us seeing that actually in the category um, as a result of COVID consumers are switching to uh, kind of bigger bags. They're spending more time at home with their family and their loved ones. So um, we quickly launched into our sharing bags. It, actually, we did it within a month, which is unheard of usually in, in the FMCG world, when, especially in a corporate where I've worked before. Um, so yeah, at the moment, it's around focusing on our impulse bags, our sharing bags, and eventually branching out into more kind of sorghum-related or other insane grain-related um, products. And what we've seen actually is that a massive switch for um, Eastern ingredients that have now moved over to the West. So if you think about things like turmeric or um, chai or um, yeah, things I've known about since I was a child and even not even just food related, but if you think about like yoga, Ayurveda, all of those um, Eastern things which are really, really popular and have just been a known thing in the Eastern world has now become more of a mainstream uh, Western thing. So for me, um, I believe that sorghum is going to be that next big thing. Um, if, if we think around 2013, quinoa was not very well known in the UK and all of a sudden it's just exploded across Europe. Um, and I believe that we're at the forefront of this big explosion of sorghum. Um, and um, actually touching on the sustainability side, um, I, I recently just did a bit of research into what uh, the impact would be if consumers switch from a product like corn, um, a crop like corn to sorghum. And what I found is actually um, it reduces the water consumption by 50%. Um, and when I looked at the number of Olympic pools that you could save, it's 247 million Olympic pools a year 
worth of water that we could save if everyone switched over from corn to sorghum. So it is really phenomenal in terms of the benefit, not just to the consumer's health, but to the planet and to the farmers and, and generally. That's amazing. Isn't it? So what other kind of food applications would you encourage the food industry to, to explore with sorghum then? Sorghum is such a versatile um, crop and there's so much that you could do with it. It's not just within snacking. Like I mentioned before, my, my aunt uses it in chapatis. She's put it in porridge. Um, there's, there's so much that you can actually do with it. And um, for us, longer term, and maybe I'm giving too much information away, but short term focuses on our core range, but longer term, actually uh, branching out into various other products. So actually you can make sorghum beer, you can make sorghum milk, um, you can use sorghum flour in baking, um, in various different cooking. So actually it could branch out into lots of different categories. And we're already see, seeing it creep up into retail channels in the UK. So places like Sainsbury's, they already have it in their cereal section. So there's a brand called Nutribrex who are um, doing a gluten-free version of Weetabix. Um, and so we're already seeing it kind of crop up. It's just how do we really drive mass awareness of it so that people know about it but then also understand its amazing um, health benefits and then start utilising it in various different categories. Insane Grain has recently teamed up with the Smart Food Initiative to start sourcing sorghum directly from farmers across Africa and Asia. The Smart Food Initiative is aiming to bring ancient grains firmly into the mainstream. These foods are good for us, the planet and the people growing them, it says. I asked this Indian-based executive director, Joanna Portaka, to elaborate on why the food industry should embrace them. Well, Ollie, the, the next big thing definitely are the millets and the sorghum. And, and there's about 11 different types of millets. So those together, and some countries consider sorghum a millet as well. So that big group of 12, 13 grains are the next really big thing. And like um, Roshina has been saying, they are, all of them are absolutely astounding nutritionally. And then they also have that benefit of being so environmentally sustainable. They survive with very minimal water. They survive with very minimal inputs. So they have a low carbon footprint. They survive in high temperatures, yet they also survive in the mountain areas. They're so versatile extremely resilient, going to be extremely important with climate change. They're going to be the alternative that the farmer needs. However, until we build the, the consumer market and awareness and develop these great new products like Rushina's um, Insane Grain, uh, we need that to drive it. But they're actually really needed for us to cope with climate change. They're something the farmer needs but we've got to drive that consumer side. And, and the nutritionally, they're going to be extremely valuable in countries, the countries like Africa and Asia, where there's a lot of issues with anemia because they're extremely high iron levels. You can get as much iron from these grains as you can from meat, uh, and that's taking the whole bioavailability into account. Uh, the finger millet has three times the amount of calcium as milk that's really astounding. And again, the bioavailability is good. So that's about how much of that nutrient that your body absorbs. And they and and they're the low glycemic index as well. 
And we know diabetes is a massively rising issue in developing and developed countries. So they can be a, a great alternative there, especially in the countries where they are consuming, for example, white refined rice as their major staple. So where 70% of their plate is white refined rice, which has extremely high glycemic index. If you can go back to their traditional foods of these grains and millets and the sorghum, then that would actually make a huge difference in those health issues. Uh, they also, they've got the great potential of, of a lot of the, the major global health food trends as well. They're gluten-free grain, high in antioxidants, high in fiber, and then all their micronutrient, uh, high micronutrients as well. They're a very unique grain. With all that being said, why do you think the food industry has been so slow to catch on to these to these ingredients? We we believe what's happened is what we call the food system divide. So for decades, we've had the vast majority of investment in just three major crops, what we call the big three, the wheat, maize and rice. So 50% of calories globally come from just those three, three the big three. Uh, 40% of private industry investment in agriculture for the whole world goes into one crop, and that's the maize. So it's really quite amazing. There's this dominance, and whether it be government support, whether it be the private industry investment, the product development, even the development aid, the vast majority of that money goes into the wheat, maize and rice. So what's happened is that their value chains have grown and consumers have become aware of it and they're in so many products. Whereas it's very difficult now to diversify the diets, diversify the farming and bring in new crops because their value chains are not developed and consumers don't know about them. And, and there's different reasons why we ended up like that. So, for example, in Asia, in the 50s and 60s, we had the Green Revolution. And the Green Revolution was needed. People were close to starvation. And so they brought in from the US new varieties of rice and, may and wheat and they did mass monocropping, mass support across huge areas just to get enough food for people to eat. So they weren't thinking about nutrition. They weren't thinking about the environment. It, it was a desperate situation to stop starvation. However, that was the turning point to then start to support just a few commodities and not necessarily the most nutritious ones. Uh, and, and, then, and then that escalated into other countries in Africa as well. And so we lost a lot of the traditional foods like the ancient grains and we lost a lot of the, the nutritious foods. Are these ingredients scalable? Oh, ab absolutely. That's one of the amazing things with the millets and sorghum is that they have many, many more uses. We say, a lot of people say they're the next quinoa. Well, we say they're much more than quinoa. They are absolutely going to surpass quinoa because of their usage and the multiple ways you can use them and, and the taste. So, for example, a lot of the millets can be cooked just like rice. They're like a couscous. They're very simple and easy. And, of course, they're a flour. You can use them in a, in a, in a soup. 
you can make we, we make millet ice cream uh they make the baby food i mean in africa and i'm not sure if you know about the drink milo drink which is a chocolate drink which is made out of barley so in africa they make that out of sorghum uh that, so uh, drinks smoothies smoothie drinks in india are big with millets and sorghum absolutely delicious and so there's just so many uses they're so tasty and so there's fantastic potential and it's really there's this growing revolution now towards this and and i think we are going to see a major revolution and and 2023 we believe will be the turning point now rushina mentioned that quinoa once was not known well in 2013 was the international year of quinoa that the un supported so now the un is likely to support an international year of millets which will include sorghum for 2023 and we really believe that will be that turning point to get the recognition and the knowledge and and people aware of the amazing value and then and then we think there'll be a great growth globally and another advantage of millets and sorghum over the quinoa quinoa was grown in in countries like bolivia just in the small areas in south america whereas millets and sorghum actually come from many many um uh, uh continents and and uh, that well they were actually in rice they were in china before rice they were cultivated in china more than 10,000 years ago and it's thought to be the oldest grain ever and that was the foxtail millet but most of the millets have been cultivated for more than 3,000 years there's there's one barnyard millet that comes from japan there's finger millet that comes from india teff is a millet that comes from ethiopia there's bonio there's others that have um come pearl millet originates from africa so they actually come from many continents many countries so it also means they're much more versatile for many different landscapes so so it's uh, we're not just bringing a grain from a country or one region we actually got amazing grains from all over the and they are already grown in a much wider area including in eastern europe they're growing them there as well is this and that is a, a huge advantage of the millets and sorghum and we call them a smart food because we say good for you the nutrition and health value good for the planet and good for the farmer and the good for the farmer is that resilience that way that they're going to be able to cope with climate change because they need fewer inputs because it uses fewer resources to survive it's uh, it, it really fits that criteria of a smart food so we say it's it goes past superfood superfood is something that's super nutritious whereas we're saying the smart food it goes more than that it's not only good for you it's also good for the planet good for the farmer so having that triple advantage is really important i would love a bit more information about how these ingredients react in in food applications well an amazing thing with the millets and sorghum is processing can actually increase the nutritional value that you can get from it because all foods have phytates which are your anti-nutrients which stop you absorbing the nutrition of the micronutrients and the macronutrients but processing can reduce that so by uh, soaking 
by sprouting. A lot of people sprout the millets first and then crush and make the flour and fermentation, etc. All that breaks down the phytates and means that you will absorb more. Now, of course, all processing isn't always going to be positive. However, this does have an advantage that processing can actually